I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about a fascinating new report out of the University of Ottawa called A National Security Strategy for the 2020s, we have with us Vincent Rigby, who is a non-resident senior advisor with the Americas program at CSIS. And Vincent is the former national security and intelligence advisor to the Prime Minister of Canada. We also have with us Professor Thomas Juneau, who's an assistant professor at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. Vincent, you picked up on the report and did a commentary for CSIS, which really timely. It's called Canada Urgently Needs to Rethink Its National Security Strategy. And our listeners can find that on our CSIS.org. But I want to get right into it with you guys. Vincent, I want to, I want to go to you. So with the war in Ukraine, national security is the, at the top of mind of all NATO countries and, and the West. You claim in this report, both of you do, that Canada has not had a national security or foreign policy statement for over 15 years. Why is that? I think there are a number of reasons. We make the argument in the paper that's not only over the last 15 years, but over many, many decades, Canada's been rather complacent when it comes to national security issues. And I think that's partly because we've never really had a direct serious attack on Canadian soil. We've had terrorist attacks, but nothing compared to 9-11 or, or anything like that. We've never been invaded by another country unless you go back to the Fenian attacks in the 1860s or something like that. We tended to retreat under the U.S. security umbrella often. And so that, I think, has, has bred a certain amount of complacency, too. So this is caught up with us, we, we believe. And when you, you mentioned Ukraine, but for us, I think Ukraine is just the validation of a lot of trends that have been really building, gathering steam over the last 10, 15, 20 years. So, yeah, Ukraine and the Russian invasion, China, so this return of geostrategic rivalry, ideological competition, domestic violent extremism, religiously motivated violent extremism has not disappeared completely. Pandemics, the COVID virus, it goes on and on and on. That's just a partial list. So the Ukraine episode in many respects was just the cherry on the cake in terms of there's been this evolving threat environment and Canada cannot bury its head in the sand. We are a NATO ally. We're a member of the G7. We're a member of the Five Eyes. We're a member of the G20. We've got to step up and and play our play our role. So that's uh, really what was behind the report. And I think why why Canada's being a little bit little bit complacent. I think it's just uh, as I as I say this this notion that others can take care of us at the end of the day. Well, you write and I think compellingly in your CSI's commentary that Canadians expect their government to protect them, yet neither Canadians nor their governments take national security seriously on a consistent basis. Is that, again, because no attack, comfort of the U.S. umbrella, or is there something more there? Thomas, I want to go to you. Hey, that's a good question, and it's, it's hard to really answer it precisely, but I would, I would say that overall the answer is, is pretty much what you said. First and foremost has got to be geography. Uh, we live in a very sheltered area. We have three oceans on three sides, and to the south, the United States. The relationship with the U.S. has not always been easy. It's been a source of frustration on a regular basis over the years. But if you take just a few steps back, by and large, Canada has been a massive beneficiary of, of relations with the U.S. on the economic side, but also on the security side. 
So we've, you know, the way that I've been framing this for a while now is that we have had the luxury of ignoring national security for a long time. By and large, that was a good thing, because if you can ignore it, it probably means, and that was our case, that you don't, you're, you're not under threat, at least not a lot. Uh, so in national elections, um, national security was simply not a preoccupation in any way. On a day-to-day -day basis, governments don't really think about it. Neither does the media, neither do Canadians. But what we're trying to say with this report is that uh, even though the apocalypse is not just around the corner, we are careful not to get into too pessimistic scenarios or to engage in fear-mongering, but we are saying the situation is deteriorating. It has in recent years, and it will likely continue to deteriorate for a number of reasons that, that we can discuss. So it is time now to start taking these issues more seriously than we traditionally have. We're not suggesting that Canada's never there and Canada doesn't respond when it has to. Canada does, I think, respond when the chips are down. And we've seen this. We've got a very proud military history. And, you know, whether you go back to the 20th century and, and various wars where we've been there and even in the 21st century, the war against terrorism, Afghanistan, et cetera, Canada's responded. But one of the arguments we make is that because we don't have a serious national security culture, we let these crises creep up on us and we wait until the very last minute to respond. And then it's very ad hoc and it's very piecemeal in terms of those responses. And so that culture is 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 missing and we don't get a chance to get ahead of the, the power curve. Your other question with respect to the people of Canada don't take it seriously, the government doesn't take it seriously. That's the That's the chicken and egg question, I think. And in many respects, we argue that the Canadian population doesn't take it seriously because if the government doesn't take it seriously and articulate the threat to people, then how can you expect the Canadian public to understand what's happening and to pressure the government? So Thomas is 100% right. It doesn't come up in, in leaders' debates in the middle of elections, and there's not a lot of you know, banging on the table from, from average Canadians. We need to spend more on national security. But I think if the government were to make an effort to explain what the threats are and how serious some of these situations are, Canadians might be a little bit more vocal and outspoken about how we need to we need to uh, do a little bit more in this area. You know, you both have talked about how the very definition of national security has changed over the past decade. Can you tell me a bit about how you think it has changed? Sure. I think that I, I, I've used this phrase uh, a few a few times. Uh, Tom's probably getting tired of me saying it, but it's not your grandparents' national security. And I, I think other countries have got that. I mean, I think the U.S. has been talking about a, a more expanded definition of national security for at least a decade, if not more, and some of our five eyes allies as, as, as well. But but national security is not is not just military threats and threats against government. You know, we, we tend to think in terms of cloak and dagger, espionage, theft of intellectual property, et cetera. And those are still those are still threats, but broader threats to the economic well-being, the social cohesion or the social well-being of Canadians writ large. They're out there more than more than ever. So whether it's pandemics, for example, which in Canada I would not say was a national security threat to begin with, but over time, as it as it threatened a little bit of social cohesion, threatened our economy for sure, threatened individual uh, Canadians' health, that was a, a national security threat. Climate change can be if it passes a certain crosses a certain threshold, the impacts of climate change can become a national security threat as well because they affect the the country as a whole. And they require a government response. And so we can't just think in terms of a very narrow definition anymore. I think we have to think much, much more broadly. And so that's one of the key messages of the, of the report. And because the threats are so large and so interconnected and so broad, we need a, what we call a whole of Canada response. It can't just be the government. It's got to be everybody pulling together 
to really react in a very efficient way. Well, I have to ask both of you, because it was so present in our news and your news, the truckers convoy really started in Canada. And then there were some copycats down here in America, but not nearly as disruptive as what you had in your neck of the woods. And that must have made you think about national security as well. We started working on this report in the fall of last year, so before the, the convoy. But if anything, what the events of early 2022 did was to confirm that there are worsening trends that we need to take more seriously. So in that sense, it confirmed our, our message, uh, I think. There, there's a few things to say about that. There was a bit of a tendency in some circles in Canada when the convoy really happened by, by the second month of the year for some Canadians to say, this is a problem that was exported from the United States. It's not a Canadian problem. And to blame you guys, which is something that, you know, Canadians are, are, are it's a bit of a national pastime to blame the U.S. for a lot of our ills. Sometimes There's enough blame to go around with us, you know, for endless, right? <laughs> but, but, but in this case, this is something that experts on right-wing extremism in Canada emphasized. This was a Canadian problem. This was a homegrown radicalization phenomena. These were Canadians, uh, and it was not your fault, basically, is, is I think, the, the key point. That being said, uh, even though this was a Canadian phenomenon, it is also true that there are growing ties between Canadian right-wing extremists, whether at an individual level or uh, among groups, and American right-wing extremists and others elsewhere in the world, in Europe in particular, in Russia also. Uh, that is a growing trend, and that is a growing problem. Even saw, and this is one of the one of the points we make in the report, not only among right wing extremists in the sense of violent uh, or potentially violent uh, groups or individuals having ties with individuals in Canada, but also American politicians and American media such as Fox, but also others encouraging the protests in Canada. That's a problem. Uh, that is a big problem for Canada. And, and how to respond to that is not obvious at all. So among the, the recommendations we make in the report and among a broader conversation we need to have in this country is not only the issue of right-wing extremism on its own, which we need to take much more seriously, but also the issue of government responses, because dealing with right-wing extremism calls for federal national security and law enforcement agencies to work with provincial police, with municipal police, uh, which is not something that we did well at all earlier this year. One of the reasons why it took such a long time to, to finally figure this out was the issue of information sharing and cooperation among different levels of, of government. Uh, that was very difficult. But even beyond the, that, that issue of coordinating a national response is the issue of what do we do with the U.S.? Um, you are our main ally. We will remain dependent on the U.S. for national security and our, our economy. That is not going to change. You're our only neighbor, and that's not going to change. So we're stuck with you. But at the same time, we do need, and I think this is a point that is difficult but important, we need to start thinking about the U.S., yes, still as the main source of our prosperity and security, but also as a source of threat. And that is not obvious. How do we monitor that threat? Do we get intelligence services to look at you guys? That's not something that culturally they're well set up to do, but we need some folks in Canada to look at bad guys in the U.S. and help us advise on what to do about that. So who does that in the government? Not obvious at all. And, and we don't have precise answers at this point because that calls for a lot of thinking. But what we're hoping with this report is to provoke that thinking in terms of well, what do we do collectively, nationally as a government, but beyond that as a society in, in dealing with what could be the export of significant instability from, from the U.S.? That is a fascinating concept to think about. We don't normally think of ourselves as a national security threat to Canada, but clearly... 
you all are needing to think about that now. We're not suggesting that the threat is there at this present time and that the United States is about to descend into into civil war, notwithstanding the fact that I think there's a lot of dialogue in the United States using that terminology, like civil war. But um, I think everybody would agree, and even in the United States, that there has been a certain amount of democratic backsliding, and this has been happening in a lot of countries, including in the United States, and that we need to watch it. And who knows what's going to happen post-2024. And so, you know, we we share a border with you. We're, we're your, your northern neighbor. And, you know, we, we often say in Canada that, that when the United States sneezes, we get a cold. <laughs> or is it when you get a cold, we sneeze? I can never remember. But either way, there's always this spillover effect. And so we have to watch this closely. Now, having said that, we work extremely closely in terms of our national security agencies together, you know, CSIS with, with CIA and FBI and communication security establishment with, with the NSA. And, and uh, you know, we've got an incredibly close relationship and we share information on domestic extremists and we work together on a regular basis. But if things were to really go south, uh, no pun intended, post-2024, I mean, if we were not looking at various scenarios up here in Canada, I think we would not be doing our job. And that's what that's what national security bodies do, right? They they look at scenarios. They look for those, they look for those black swans and go, ooh, boy, don't think this is going to happen. Uh, low probability, but whoa, talk about high impact. We got to be prepared. By the way, I can't tell you how many calls per month I get from Canadians who think CSIS is CSIS. And I always say the same thing. I say, you know, you realize you're dialing a 202 area code. And that's Washington, D.C., not in Canada, but oh, well. It's really difficult for me now because when people say, what are you doing? And I say that I'm a, I'm a senior advisor with, with CSIS. They go, oh, so you went back into the Canadian government and you're a spy. And I, I go, no, I go, it's the CSIS in Washington, D.C. So I have to spell it out each time. Yeah. Well, you know, this brings me back to the current conflict in Ukraine, which, you know, is top of mind for all of us who are in the West, NATO, certainly the Five Eyes, has the Russian invasion of Ukraine put pressure on the Canadian government to really reassess national security strategy? In a limited way, I would say yes. And I think that the, the debate that we've had over Ukraine for the last three to six months has been interesting and, and to a large extent revealing of what we need to do. If you go back to what I was saying a few minutes ago, that Canada has benefited from the luxury of, of being in a very safe environment in our comfortable position at the top of North America. One of the implications of that is that we have had the luxury of choice. Every time we commit to a military intervention, uh, whether directly, think Afghanistan, think the coalition against the Islamic State, or indirectly supporting Ukraine now, it really is a matter of choice, right? We could say yes or we could say no, and we would not suffer direct consequences. We, we haven't been in a war of necessity for a long time. And the war in Ukraine is one of those, if you look at it in a, in a bit of a narrow sense. So what has driven, at least to a large extent, especially in the early phases in the fall, when you know before the invasion, what was driving the government's actions on this, and I don't want to say only, but to a large extent, was domestic politics, which is what happens when you face a war of choice, right? You're driven at least in large part by domestic considerations. We have the largest Ukrainian diaspora outside of Ukraine and Russia in the world, in Canada, more than one million people. And as was completely expected, you know, this aspect of domestic politics was the key driver, I think, of, of the decision. 
But at the same time, the point that was there underlying those debates, even though it was very, very abstract, and I don't think that it, I haven't seen evidence that it has really been driving government action, is the issue of NATO cohesion and NATO unity. From our perspective in Canada, and this is at a very, you know, 50,000 level feet high up in the air abstract level, NATO is a vital interest for us. Because if you look at various scenarios where NATO would disappear, whether after the Cold War, right? If you go back to the 1990s, that was an idea that was bouncing around. Or if you look back to now, going back to Vincent was saying two minutes ago, President Trump or like-minded Republican comes to power in 2024 and withdraws the U.S. from NATO, right? Which is not a completely far-fetched scenario. That was science fiction five years ago or seven years ago, but not anymore. One of the implications, looking at it from a Canadian perspective of the U.S. withdrawing from NATO, is that we fall between the cracks, right? NATO is a way for us to be there when the U.S. and Europe manage transatlantic security issues. If there's no NATO framework, then the U.S. and NATO have these conversations and we're not there anymore. And not that we have a loud voice at the table when these discussions happen, but we're there at least and we're informed and we're in the loop and we can do our small part. Our interest as Canadians in what is going on in Ukraine now is, of course, the humanitarian dimension in Ukraine, of course, rolling back Russian aggression, all of these dimensions matter, but also NATO cohesion is a key interest for us. And anything that we can do to strengthen that, to try to ensure that is fundamentally in our interest. I, I would agree with everything that Thomas just said. To answer your question directly in terms of, you know, is this going to wake up Canadians? I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. I haven't seen all the most recent polls, but the fact of the matter is Ukraine is still a, a long way away. And I think the Canadian response, we could argue here whether it's been robust enough, but we have certainly responded. We provided assistance to the Ukrainian government. But at the end of the day, what are we, 100 days into the war now? It's not front page news anymore. It's not front page news in a lot of newspapers around, around the world. But if there's been particularly uh, bitter fighting or a major statement by Zelensky, sure, it'll end up on the front page. But it's slipping out of the fifth or sixth page. And it's not a direct threat necessarily to Canadians. So we're quite excited in a way by the timing of this report, given that it came out just after the convoys earlier in the year and now Ukraine, that this will resonate with Canadians. But we'll see. And I'll be interested to see the opinion of polls as they start to come out, you know, with a question along the lines of, you know, do you think, given what's happening in Ukraine, that Canada has to do more with respect to defense spending, you know, national security writ large, and, and so on and so forth? I'm, I'm not sure there's going to be a direct correlation or not. It's hard to say. How important is the public's view of national security in determining whether the Canadian government will actually act to come up with a new national security strategy and, and move forward with it? As of right now, this is not an issue that is on the radar of, of Canadians. So one of the recommendations we make in the report is for the government to take a, a bit of a, a step forward uh, on this issue and initiate a review of our national security. As you mentioned, we haven't had one since 2004. But we absolutely realize we're not naive. Uh, you know, we, we did this report with advice from a task force of 12 retired senior officials, former heads of the Canadian CSIS, other former national security advisors, former deputy ministers, our equivalent to deputy secretary of foreign affairs and defense, the former head of our financial intelligence unit. Uh, there were only two academics uh, in the task force. And for that matter, myself and my colleague also have government experience. So we're not naive. We understand how these things work. One of the underlying messages of the report is to criticize successive governments. We are careful not to single out the current one, to criticize successive governments for uh, not taking national security seriously and also for 
you know, being driven to the limited extent that they care for national security by the news cycle, by polls, which, again, in a democracy is inevitable. And, and to some extent, you, you, you don't want that not to happen. But at the same time, in this case, we do think that it is it is really the right time for the government to, you know, to take that step and initiate a, a broader review. One of our main messages is that there is no more important responsibility for the federal government than the security of its people. That has to be primordial. So your question about how important is it for public opinion to influence the government, our response to that is that the government needs to show initiative here. The government has to have the political will to put this on the agenda. Don't wait for an average Canadian who's not necessarily educated on the threat because the government's not educated, but not waiting for them to say, hey, government, you need to do something. Government needs to step forward and do it. And Thomas is 100% correct. Look beyond the electoral cycle. Look beyond the news cycle. Try and have a long-term strategic view here. So then you'll start to have the debate to, at the leader's table during elections. Then you'll start to have these questions being raised in the House of Commons, et cetera. But the government, in our view, has to take the lead here. That's why they make the big bucks. <laughs> the report gives several key recommendations. One of them is is really interesting to me, calling for the government to establish a national security cabinet body chaired by the prime minister. You know, for us in America, we almost, you know, looking at that, we can't believe that that doesn't exist already. It's, in, in my view, one of the most important recommendations. And, you know, we are out of step with our Five Eyes allies. You have a national security council that's enshrined in legislation. The other Five Eyes allies have cabinet committees that are chaired by by their prime ministers. We don't have anything of that sort. And we've played with them in the, in the past, but we've never really made it uh, you know, a permanent or quasi-permanent structure. Uh, we feel this is really critical. We have in the Canadian government right now, I used to be the secretary for it, what's known as an incident response group. And uh, this is, you know, as its title suggests, it's very much about reacting to a crisis that is already underway. And so the prime minister calls an IRG, as it's, as it's known, Ministers come in, there are quick intel briefs, everything's cobbled together and they come up with the with a response. And you know, it's for 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 what it's intended to do, it's it's been a relatively effective body, but there's no long-term thinking. There's no strategic thinking. There are no long-term intelligence briefings to not just the prime minister, but all of the key public safety or national security ministers. So we just think it's a it's a huge, huge gap. And you know, form follows function, but sometimes function follows form as well. You we feel the threats are so detailed and complicated and interconnected right now that we need a body of this sort. But at the same time, the body will help drive the discussion and the body will make sure that these topics are top of mind for the prime minister and the government all the time. And they're getting ahead of that proverbial power curve. And then they're going back to the people and the prime minister's got this stuff in his head as his number one responsibility, going to the people of Canada and saying, I've just met with my cabinet committee and, you know, X, Y, and Z. So it, again, it, it can't be piecemeal ad hoc all the time. We, we need a body like this, in, in my view, to really drive this strategic discussion. Thomas, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, one of the questions I have is, you know, one of your recommendations is that the government needs to better engage the public. It would seem to me that creating a body like that would really enable it to better engage the public. So we have a number of recommendations in the report on increasing government transparency, increasing government engagement on national security issues. You know, the, the interesting thing is that this is a section in the report that we would not even have mentioned uh, until a few years ago. But for a number of reasons, uh, transparency and engagement have been increasingly on the agenda. 
we have not done well at this level in this country. Our national security community is not transparent. None of them are uh, throughout the world, to some extent for good reasons, uh, but we are especially bad at that level. But but there has been some improvement. So what we do in the report is make a number of recommendations on how to be more transparent. Some of these recommendations, I think, and I think you're right to mention the National Security Committee of Cabinet as among those recommendations, because even if the deliberations of that committee would, of course, remain secret, very existence of that committee would bring the issues to the attention of the media. It would mean that coming out of those cabinet meetings, the prime minister would have a scrum, answer questions on journalists about what they had just talked about. Just these small things over time incrementally raise the level of debate on, on these issues. So as much as there would be a whole series of other benefits from a committee of cabinet on national security, as Vincent just said, there's also a transparency benefit. But we also make a number of other recommendations on issuing, for example, a public threat report on a yearly basis, uh, which, again, would serve the purpose of raising awareness, raising debate. And one of the ways that we frame this, and I, I've been working on, on transparency issues quite a bit over the last few years, I co-chair a government advisory body called the National Security Transparency Advisory Group here. So we provide advice to the national security community on issues of transparency. And one of the ways that we we try to frame these issues, and I think it's reflected in the report, is that too often people view the issue of transparency as something that is morally right, but that is a bit abstract, and that usually comes at the expense of national security. So it's an issue of finding a balance. But the way that that, that I think is important to, to frame it instead is that, no, no, Less transparency actually comes at the cost of national security. More transparency, of course, to some extent, of course, within obvious limits, is actually good for national security. So, for example, by not being transparent on national security issues, the government is creating an inf- or is contributing to an information vacuum. And that vacuum becomes easier to be filled by disinformation, whether on vaccines, whether on Russian electoral interference or on other issues. And I mean, for reasons of time, we, we, we won't go through all of these details, but you could give a whole range of other examples where the lack of transparency ultimately damages national security. So we're, we're making a number of recommendations on engagement, on transparency, on briefings to parliament, on public reports, on social media, on public speeches, et cetera, et cetera, that would allow this information vacuum to be filled by more information. You know, one of your recommendations is that the national security tools of Canada need to be tuned up and made up to date and fit for purpose. What do you mean by that? Is is Canada, you know, as one of the five eyes, we think of Canada as as really strong and really up to date. Are there things that are missing that need to be really fine-tuned, or is this a more systemic problem? We have a very strong SNI community in terms of the individual agencies. And so the communication security establishment, for example, is is best in class in, in terms of its mandates, in terms of cyber security and, and espionage. And CSIS is, 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 is extremely good as, as, as well. What we're saying, though, is that in a number of areas, we could sharpen some of our tools and we could develop new tools to adapt to changing times, changing technology, et cetera. And the nature of the threats that are that are out there, and the kinds of responses that we need to have. So, for example, we need to look at some of our some of our legislation. The Canadian CSIS, its its legislation, is um, almost forty years old. 
And, you know, we used to make the joke, I remember the director used to make this joke all the time that cutting edge technology in 1984 was the fax machine. And so there have been no major changes to that legislation in the intervening years. So it's time to take a look at the, the CSIS Act. It's time to take a look at the Emergencies Act, especially after, after what happened with, with, with the convoys at our Investment Canada Act. So legislation is one thing. I think information sharing. Again, going back to what Thomas was saying, information is at the center, right? Intelligence is at the center of our national security apparatus. And we don't share intelligence particularly well inside the community, not as well as we could. We don't get it up to government as efficiently and effectively as we as we could. But we don't share intel and information outside of government. So going back to this whole of Canada response, where it can't just be the federal government, but we need to work with the private sector, universities, research institutions, and so on. They, they can't help us if they don't have intel and they don't have information. So how can we share information with them a little bit more? And then on specific themes, specific topics, I mean, hostile activities of state actors, Russian activities, Chinese activities, are there things that we could do a little bit better? And we've been talking about a strategy. It was under, underway when I was National Security Advisor to, to counter uh, HASA, hostile activities by state actors. We need to get that strategy out the door and, and look at some of the tools that the U.S. has used, the Australians have used. For example, the Australians have a, have a coordinator for foreign interference which we think would be maybe a useful model in the, in the Canadian case. And then on going back to violent extremism, I mean, the U.S. has a, has a strategy to counter uh, domestic violent extremism. Do we need a strategy and do we need to look at some specific tools in terms of monitoring activities, et, et cetera, and especially on the disinformation side and, and also just in terms of social media? Thomas has uh, talked a lot. He's an expert on this, on, on open intelligence and you know, scraping social media to, to get intel and when it comes to domestic violent extremists, how we can do that in Canada. It's not, it's not easy for, for, for a number of reasons. So those are just a, a few examples of some of the tools that, again, either sharpen what we have or develop new ones. I'd add two quick points to that, where the, the distinction between new tools and sharpening tools that we already have is an important one. The, the first one I'd mention is CSC, which is our equivalent to your NSA. It's the Communication Security Establishment. It's the National Cryptological uh, Organization. CSC is actually really good. It, you know, if you look at various rankings of offensive and defensive cyber power, Canada typically ranks among the top 10, sometimes even more uh, than, than top 10. So it's quite good, but it's especially good at protecting uh, government electronic infrastructure. But a lot of the cyber threats we face today is, you know, stealing IP property, research security. We saw that during the pandemic in terms of, of theft of IP in the biomedical sector. Where we do have to improve a lot is cybersecurity outside the government. So in the private sector, in universities, in the research sector, in civil society, for that matter, when, for example, China or others will pressure online or otherwise members of their diaspora communities in Canada. So the point that we're making here is that in terms of sharpening tools, it's about broadening them so that they can, we can help defend beyond the government, because that's where a lot of the threats are. The second point that I'd mention is the issue of human resources. This is a topic that I always like to talk about, that in some of my research I've looked into, most people roll their eyes when you start talking about human resources, but ultimately it's essential. And if you don't get the human resources right, you won't be able to maximize your use of tools that you will have either generated or sharpened, including some of those that Vincent mentioned. Uh, there's a lot of human resources challenges in the Canadian security and intelligence community in terms of recruitment, in terms of retention, in terms of morale. The security clearance process has a massive backlog, which creates a whole range of, of cascading or spillover issues beyond that. So 
what we do say in the report, and that's one of our recommendations, is to really take these human resources issues much more seriously. There's a part of me that wishes that our review and oversight bodies that are responsible for reviewing and overseeing the work of the intelligence community, that they could focus on human resources issues. I'm not sure if they will because it's not sexy. It's not as fun as some of the other stuff that they can look at. But again, we've neglected it and it has created a range of cascading problems. Gentlemen. Thank you very much for this fascinating discussion and helping us get to the truth of the matter about some of the key national security issues facing our favorite neighbors to the north. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. It was a pleasure. Really appreciate it, guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 